Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. The court heard oral arguments in a few noteworthy cases this week and handed down one opinion. Zach, can you start us off with arguments? Sure thing. In light of our long interview this week, let's focus on two oral arguments. The first is Coinbase versus Bilski. It's an arbitration case that will decide whether a district court must stay a case when a party files an interlocutory appeal from the court's denial of a motion to compel arbitration. The second is Jack Daniels versus VIP Products. This is the trademark infringement case involving a dog toy that looks like a Jack Daniels bottle with the text (laughs) changed to humorous, (laughs) but somewhat crude, uh, dog-do-related phrases. The question is, does this dog toy fall within the parody exception to the trademark laws? Now, this was a fascinating (laughs) oral argument. Uh, The... uh, incomparable Lisa Blatt (laughs) argued part of it. And I encourage everyone to go look at excerpts from that transcript. I think Lisa Blatt got away with uh, argument techniques only Lisa Blatt could could get away with. Uh, But during oral argument, the justices seemed to have fun with the case too. And Justice Elena Kagan admitted uh, that she didn't get the joke. Uh, She said, quote, maybe I just have no sense of humor, but where's the parody? To her, the dog toy was more like a standard commercial product than a political t-shirt, a film, or any other more expressive sort of item. On the other hand, Justices Alito, Sotomayor, and Jackson were concerned about the First Amendment implications of letting Jack Daniels put the squeeze on this (laughs) look-alike chew toy. Thank you. Thank you. Now, this is an interesting case that will give the justices a lot to chew on. You proud of that? Uh, (laughs) Is it hard to tell? (laughs) Uh, So, yes. Yes, I am. All right. Uh, GC, do you need a minute? Your face is a little red here. (laughs) I do do need a minute. (laughs) All right. All right. On to opinions. Uh, I'm a a sucker for a bad joke. You're going to have to take my microphone away, GC. (laughs) All right. Um, Now, that might be the fan favorite move. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on to opinion. Uh, And I'm going to take your microphone away. Uh, Perez versus Sturgis. Out of my cold, dead hands. (laughs) I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Perez versus Sturgis Public Schools, Zach, is a case (laughs) where uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote for a unanimous court holding that the administrative exhaustion requirement in the Individuals with Disabilities in Education or IDEA Act does not bar an Americans with Disabilities Act claim that seeks compensatory damages. So let me unpack. The plaintiff here had filed an IDEA complaint against his school alleging essentially that it failed to provide him adequate disability-related accommodations. The school settled that complaint and agreed to provide him with better resources going forward, but the settlement did not include any compensatory damages because those are not available under the IDEA Act. So the plaintiff also then brought an ADA claim, which can give him compensatory damages. And in response, the school district argued that IDEA's requirement that a plaintiff exhaust all administrative processes under that statute barred the ADA claim. But the unanimous Supreme Court disagreed because IDEA's exhaustion requirement applies only when a plaintiff is, and I quote, seeking relief that is also available under the IDEA Act and compensatory damages are not. 
So what this means is that going forward, disabled students will be free to sue their school districts for both injunctive and compensatory relief under both acts. Now, GC, I'm looking forward to your interview this week. Yes, indeed. Uh, Judge Kyle Duncan joins us to talk about Stanford. Excellent. Right after this. As conservatives, sometimes it feels like we're constantly on defense against bad ideas. Bad philosophy, revisionist history, junk science, and divisive politics. But here's something I've come to understand. When faced with bad ideas, it's not enough to just defend. If we want to save this country, then it's time to go on offense. Conservative principles are ideas that work. Individual responsibility, strong local communities, and belief in the American dream. As a former college professor and current president of the Heritage Foundation, my life's mission is to learn, educate, and take action. My podcast, The Kevin Roberts Show, is my opportunity to share that journey with you. I'll be diving into the critical issues that plague our nation, having deep conversations with high-profile guests, some of whom may surprise you. And I want to ensure freedom for the next generation. Find The Kevin Roberts Show wherever you get your podcasts. Well, this week we are joined by a returning guest, Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan. Hello. (laughs) Unless you have been living under a rock, you know that there was a mob of Stanford Law students who, in the tradition of students at Yale and Georgetown and Hastings, have prevented Judge Duncan from speaking at a Stanford Federalist Society event. Judge Duncan has graciously agreed to join us to talk about the disruption, the state of free speech uh, on law school campuses. Judge Duncan, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Giancarlo. Glad to be back here. (laughs) Delight to have you. So now I would be very surprised if our listeners weren't aware of everything that happened, and I am sure that you are very tired of talking about it. So I have linked your Wall Street Journal op-ed in the show notes here. Uh, But just as a refresher for those of our listeners who may have missed it somehow, uh, could you give us a brief overview of what happened at Stanford, starting with Why were you there in the first place? Certainly. Um, I often speak at law schools. Um, I am uh, often invited by students group, student groups such as the Federalist Society to just speak about normally the work of our court, the U.S. Fifth Circuit, and um, some of our more prominent cases. Um, My talks at law schools, which have been all over the country, have never been uh, controversial at all. And of course, I don't go there to foment controversy. I do there. I go simply to interact with law students, and it's a good way to see uh, potential clerks and, and people who might be interested in working for me someday. So I'm glad to do it. Um, I had been at Stanford in 2019 uh, with no no problems. Uh, this time, uh, the 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 student chapter of the Federal Society invited me. Um, I was happy to do it. Uh, I've, I've, got, I've got a friend in uh, D.C. who's a very prominent lawyer whose son is on the board. Happy to um, to do that. And like I said, I'd been to Stanford before. I know members of the faculty. Um, so th- this uh, was to be no different than any of my other talks. And I plan to talk about some of the uh, recent decisions of our court where, we're dis- where we've had to decide cases that are sort of in a gray area of Supreme Court doctrine, uh, where we have to sort of uh, figure out um, uh, whether the Supreme Court's going in a new direction. And so these are areas like COVID vaccines or Second Amendment rights or um, or social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting. Uh, the, the students no doubt read these cases in school, so I thought they'd like to hear from a, from a judge sort of how what the decision-making process is like. Okay. So I take it going in, you had no idea that you were going to be targeted by this protest. Um, actually, a couple of days before um, – so let me back up. Uh, probably a month before because of the things that had happened at Yale, mm-hmm. uh, I was – 
a little wary about going to Stanford. Not not that Stanford was a problem in particular, but I did reach out to the students and said, "Do you think there's any chance of um, there being a protest?" And they said, "No, that there's they have no indication of that." A couple of days before the talk, I um, did hear from the student group uh, that a protest was planned, um, and so I wasn't alarmed by this. What I did was reach out. to the administration through a professor there I know. I also spoke with a few lawyers uh, who had been protested by similar groups recently to see what I might expect. So um, I was not expecting anything remotely of this magnitude. I was expecting perhaps some signs, Mm -hmm. maybe a walkout, um, which would have been fine. Um, I was told, again, through my intermediary by the administration that they um, they were on top of it and that their policies prohibited disruption of speakers. So mm. I went with with some idea that there could be a protest, but I really did expect the event to just sort of go off and students to speak their mind if they wanted to, but then to just, you know, move on. Okay. So when you got to the campus and you were on your way to the classroom and entering the classroom, what actually greeted you? Well, the first thing were posters, many, many posters, uh, and not only posters with my uh, photo on them denouncing me for various uh, decisions that I've made, bad opinions that I've held, bad thoughts that I've thought. More disturbing than that, though, were the faces of the board mm. of the Federalist Society, the students who had invited me, and the posters um, announced that they should be ashamed of themselves. And I have to say that set my teeth on edge mm. right then because it struck me as deeply disrespectful of one's fellow students to put something like that up on a wall. Mm -hmm. The obvious purpose was to intimidate those students um, and to prevent other students from coming to the talk uh, if they were inclined to do Mm -hmm. so. So I thought it was very poor form uh, to put up a poster like that. So do you have a sense of why these students have such I guess, uh, not to beat around the bush, it sounds like hatred for you or at least for your ideas and for the Federalist Society members. It certainly seemed like personal contempt for me. Um, Interestingly, the posters and then the subsequent protest, as far as I could tell, had nothing to do with the subject of my speech. Mm. So it wasn't as if I were on campus trying to uh, convince the students of some dastardly proposition, mm-hmm. and they were, they were going to speak back at me and, and debate me. That, that was not the point. Evidently, the point was when I was in private practice, I represented clients that they hate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, 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 they dislike. Um, I represented Hobby Lobby stores uh, in, a, in, a, in a well-known case. Uh, I represented states um, in defending their traditional marriage laws against attacks mm-hmm. um, uh, in, the, in the run-up to Obergefell. Um, while on the bench, uh, so I, I gathered from comments made both during and, and before the, the talk that the, the students really disliked those uh, representations that I had made. As far as opinions on the bench, I think, as I said in the Wall Street Journal, I've been on the court five years now. I've written, I, I'd say, 200 opinions, mm-hmm. give or take, uh, across all conceivable areas of federal and state law. Uh, some of them siding with plaintiffs, some of them siding with environmental groups, some of them siding against those people. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a huge range of cases. The one case that was directly mentioned was a case in which um, a, a prison inmate who had been convicted of receiving child pornography 
uh, made a motion, a very unusual motion in our court. Uh, this isn't writing. This wasn't an open mm-hmm. court, as some of the students apparently misunderstood. Made a written motion that he be uh, described or called feminine pronouns. And it was one of these motions from a prisoner that is not particularly well argued or, or not well elaborated. And mm-hmm. th- that was the best I could make of it. And I wrote a, a short opinion explaining that federal courts don't have the authority to control the p- pronouns by which people address each other. There's mm-hmm. no precedent for that whatsoever. Um, and so uh, the court denied the motion uh, uh, over my written opinion. There was a dissent. Um, and the students characterized this, as far as I could tell amid the catcalls and the howling, um, that I was denying the, the prisoner's uh, existence, mm. uh, which um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. <laughs> but that is a pretty common talking point on that issue. I guess so. Uh, so you, you mentioned the howling, the cat calling. You tried for several minutes, I gather, 10, 20 minutes to try to get through your speech. I did. Uh, I did. I've never tried to give a talk under those circumstances. And um, I, I, listeners, I invite you to try. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's intensely uh, unpleasant. It's an interesting way of silencing someone, to mm-hmm. heckle them every other word, to jeer at them, to you know, do cat calls to have uh, annoying signs up. I mean, I, I could imagine pushing through if it was just signs and I knew the audience was hostile and maybe mm-hmm. there'd be some intense Q&A afterwards. But this was a totally different level. And after a few minutes, and I've gone back and listened to the audio as unpleasant as it is, mm-hmm. and I was trying to give a talk. It was very obvious to me that it was going nowhere, that uh, the vast majority of the students weren't there to listen to mm-hmm. a talk. But instead, we're there to engage in some sort of ritualistic shaming of me. And so I decided at some point to tell the students how disrespectful they were acting. And and not to me in particular, uh, but to their fellow students. Mm -hmm. And the response to that, uh, the the volume just kept getting higher and higher as I I tried to engage with the students and try to call them to some kind of civil behavior. Mm -hmm. The, uh, The volume kept getting louder and louder. And the response to what I was trying to say was, well, you don't respect us. You don't acknowledge our existence. Um, And so therefore, we don't have to show you any, the barest minimum of respect at all, which is um, a disturbing position to take, Mm -hmm. uh, since I don't even know those students. And I've never engaged with them before. And of course, I was trying to, I I went there to the, to the law school with every intention of having a respectful talk. Um, So I, I tried to engage for a little while, but then it became impossible. So during this, uh, I, don't, I can't exactly call it a back and forth, but uh, uh, where are the, the Federalist Society students, the few who showed up? Um, and what are they doing? There, there were a few who showed up, and I was grateful for them. It was obvious mm-hmm. who they were because they were sitting near the front, and they looked um, uh, they looked chagrined. <laughs> uh, they, they're, they're, they're great people. Um, I had talked to some of them beforehand. They, they were sitting there, and I kept thinking. I kept trying to make eye contact with them. And um, and I, I, it kept going through my mind, well, what must they be thinking? Mm. This was, needless to say, not my experience in law school. Right. Um, and to to be uh, uh, subjected to the contempt and derision, uh, the loud and, and, and vulgar derision of your fellow students at an official event, and then, as we will learn in a second, where administrators were in mm-hmm. fact present, that must have been extremely distressing for them. Right. Uh, and if anything, uh, I am angry and I remain angry on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they nobody deserves to be treated like that right. uh, in a law school, and and I, it's uh, it's it's really contemptible. I, I want to get back to that point in just a minute, but yeah. but pause for a moment on these Stanford administrators. So Stanford has a free speech policy, and it says. Uh, that, that you can't disrupt events. You can't exercise essentially a heckler's veto. Uh, the administrators will enforce this and students who violate it will be punished. In fact, though, there were at least five administrators there uh, who did nothing. So what was happening during the, the screening? Um, it was a, a confusing experience to say the least. Um, I was not told beforehand that there would be any administrators there. One um, – Dean of some sort uh, approached me at the beginning of the speech as if to just say, hello, how are you? Mm -hmm. uh, but there was no real interaction there. Um, at some point, it was, I forget if it was one of the FedSoc members, pointed out to me, well, there are administrators over there on the side. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who they were. Um, I had no way of knowing it. They were off to the side. Uh, somebody told me five, uh, okay. something like that. Um, so they were there. I have learned since that one of them, the, the dean that spoke, had sent an email, I guess, to the students ahead of time uh, expressing, um, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't remember what the email said, some kind of disapproval, some mm -hmm. kind of some kind of disappointment at, at the uh, at the event. Um, so there were administrators there, which makes the whole thing that much more surreal mm -hmm. um, that there were administrators there that were watching. I'm not sure what the purpose of them coming there. It's Let's just say I, it, it is not the way I would expect law school administrators to handle a situation like that, especially a situation that they knew ahead of time could be disruptive. Mm -hmm. So at some point, one of those administrators, the D Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Tieran Steinbach, uh, gets up uh, and begins speaking from prepared remarks. How did she get involved, and what did she say? Again, the it's like the the surreal. I'm not sure what the noun is for surreal. The surrealness, <laughs> um, the otherworldliness of the event just kept going up at, at every moment. Um, and I, I've looked at the video, and at some point, I, I see myself getting very frustrated and saying, "Is there an administrator here, please, who can restore some order?" And lo and behold, there comes an administrator. And so I see an administrator, this this um, woman who I didn't know, um, coming up to me from the side. And I, I see myself on the video saying, okay, you're an administrator. We, we please tell the students to stop mm -hmm. doing this. And there's this strange moment where it's obvious that she intends to speak, but it's not clear that what the purpose of her speaking is. Is, right, is she right. going to speak to me? Is she going to speak to the students? What's going to happen? And so I resisted. I, I, uh, I said, well, look, this is my speech. I, I just want you to restore order, please. Right. Tell the students to stop doing this. Then the students started yelling at me for disrespecting right. the dean, right. which leads me to believe this was all preplanned. I don't know mm -hmm. that for a fact, but it sure seemed like a setup. And I told the, the dean that this looked like a setup. And so uh, I, I gave way. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, uh, I, the dean I saw had a prepared speech. Mm -hmm. And she went off on the, the – the, she gave the speech that everyone – many people have seen. Um, I've, read a, I've read a transcript of it to, when I was preparing my article. I wanted to make sure that I got – understood what she said, mm -hmm. uh, reported it correctly because at the time, I was confused about what the point of the speech was. Mm -hmm. Was it a, a defense of my presence there? Was it a reprimand to the students or was it instead the reverse, kind of a reprimand to me and a defense of the students? Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm still not really sure what it was. It's hard to pin down. <laughs> right. I mean, my own reading is that it's 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 a defense of them and an attack on you, written to look like the opposite is. F- uh, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's open to multiple interpretations. Yes, I, I think that's right. So she, I mean, she lectures for many minutes. She, she says, you know, free speech is very important, but ultimately, is the juice worth the squeeze? Was the talking point she kept coming to? And then you said, um, what on earth does that mean? And she said. Um, she explained finally that what she meant was, was the pain and disruption that my presence on campus was causing, was that worth my speech? Mm-hmm. Meaning, I think she said, do you have something so important to tell us about, you know, uh, COVID and guns and Twitter, which was the name of my talk, just about the decisions. Do you have something so important to say about that, that it would justify the pain that I'm causing? On campus, of course, that's ludicrous. I wasn't right. causing pain on right. campus. I didn't show up unannounced. I didn't show up uh, with a fire extinguisher and start spraying it on people. Mm-hmm. I didn't show up and start uh, damaging the campus. Right. I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, you know, I didn't do anything to cause pain or disruption except to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the whole idea didn't make any sense. But as I've thought about it since, what it is is sort of a sophisticated way, or maybe it's a folksy way of saying. Um, these people are so upset, was it really worth you coming? Right, right, right. So. It's, it's like uh, if a parent gives in to the child's temper tantrum to stop the yelling. <laughs> it's right. what it strikes right. me as. Uh, so um, after, after this event, um, you were interviewed by a couple people, David Ladd, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and returning to the Fed Sox students and your anger on their behalf, you said to him, you know, look, I, I've got life tenure. I'm going to keep doing my job. You, know, you don't have to feel sorry for me. But the Fed stock students, um, you know, they're had their they were harassed. They had their event disrupted. Uh, they're in an, obviously a very hostile environment where their peers and their administrators are uh, arrayed against them. Can you discuss your feelings towards them and the position they're in? Well, I mean, th- those those students are owed a deep and profound and sincere apology by the law school. Mm. It's that simple. I don't know if one has been given. Uh, a a right. written apology has been given to me, which mm-hmm. I'm grateful for. I have no idea what's been said to the students. Um, I, I've seen an email to the students, but I don't know whether they've been apologized to. Yeah. It, it's a basic principle of sort of empathy. Uh, put yourself in their position. Okay, so let, let's say you're a student at Stanford, or you're an administrator at Stanford, and you abhor everything the Federalist Society stands for. Fine. Mm-hmm. Great. That's, that's your prerogative. But put yourself in their position. You're there. You're in a law school. You're a 1L. You're at Stanford. You're at one of the finest law schools in the country. Your bright future lies ahead of you. You have done nothing wrong. You've invited a sitting federal circuit judge to speak on campus. Uh, with And you you followed. I've never heard that these students violated a single rule mm-hmm. uh, by, by inviting me. You haven't you, you have not invited invited Milo Yiannopoulos to speak on campus. Mm-hmm. You have not invited some professional provocateur, although we can talk about that aspect mm-hmm. of it in a second. You have simply invited a sitting federal circuit judge to speak on campus. And all of a sudden you are greeted with this level of public contempt, um, even even uh, threats, I would say. Put yourself in their position. It's simple. It's easy to put yourself in their position. You'd feel awful. You'd mm-hmm. feel marginalized. You'd feel vulnerable. You'd feel like you were not welcome at that school. Right. Um, that's I, I don't. I haven't talked to them specifically and asked. Well, how do you feel? 
I'm assuming yeah. that any human being would feel that. The, the school has got to make that right. Mm-hmm. I'm not telling them what to do. I'm not even suggesting right. what concrete things they should do, but they've got to make that right. Uh, that cannot be how you foster belongingness, which is right. a word I kept hearing right. um, uh, in, in the uh, dean's remarks. It cannot be how you foster someone's sense of belonging yeah. in a law school community. So uh, to the point about the school's apology, at least as of this moment, the school has not apologized to the Stanford members, at least not in any way which is public. Uh, although some – there has been some reporting, pre- predominantly Aaron Siberian at the Washington Free Beacon. The administration and some professors have reached out to the students but only to tell them to delete their pages from Stanford's website, to make no comment to the, to the media, to go dark on social media, uh, all because it might embarrass the school. And it seems to have worked because none of them have said anything. What do you make of that response? It seems misplaced to me. I mean, first of all, the school has done a, uh, a bang-up job of embarrassing itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it has to worry anymore about further embarrassment. I think we've reached the nadir of mm-hmm. embarrassment. Um, I, I, if I were in charge, which I'm not, um, I would not waste my efforts um, further marginalizing students, telling them to shut up, which is what that sounds like. Um, uh, instead, I, I would, um, I would, like I said, I would try to make sure that they feel welcomed at the school and uh, try to make things right with them. So that, that, that uh, I, I'm not privy to those kind of communications. I, that sounds misplaced to me. Mm-hmm. Returning to a point you made earlier about, uh, you mentioned um, professional provocateurs. Was there a point you wanted to make on that front? Yes. Um, it, it was immediately told me not long after the speech concluded that administrator and administrator administrators were making the claim that I was, that I showed up there sort of spoiling for a fight, that Mm -hmm. I didn't actually have a speech prepared. Mm -hmm. That's flatly not true. Um, And the the mere suggestion of it is laughable and ludicrous. No federal judge I know, including (laughs) this one right here, has the time or the inclination to go around stirring up trouble on campuses as if we are Back in the heyday of the Vietnam War era and, and you know, and, and we're on campus trying to stoke a rally or something. I'm astonished that that suggestion was ever made. I have given um, countless talks at law schools, both as a lawyer and as a judge. I have never had anything remotely like this happen. Um, I go to law schools to interact with students because I remember when I was a law, a law student at a, at a law school, by the way, nowhere near as exalted as Stanford. But we had the, the good fortune of having Justice Kennedy come, Justice Ginsburg come, and I, had to, I got to have dinner with both of them. Mm-hmm. And it made a huge impression on me. They spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember what they said. I don't remember what I said. Uh, but they spoke to me. They were there acknowledging my existence. Mm-hmm. And it made a huge impression, a deep impression on me. And so I try to return the favor as much as I can. Um, and that's why I go to campus, yeah. uh, not to pick a fight. With anybody. Right, right. I had a, a similar experience uh, in law school. Justice Kagan showed up and I was working the registration table and I uh, sort of summoned up the courage, my courage, and asked her if I could take a picture with her. And she you know, put her arm around me and took a picture and, you know, it made me feel tremendous that she would do that. Of, um, of course it did. Right. I don't know her personally, but she strikes me as a very, very gracious person. I've seen her interact with mm. lawyers and judges and students in a very, very gracious way. As, ma- as many... Supreme Court justices do. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it's a it's it's a privilege for us as judges to interact with students, um, just to put a human face on the court. Uh, and and by the way, I, I mean I have no problem with a student asking me a tough question, but let's let's do it in a different setting than that. Right. right. Let let's let's not let's not do it in that setting. That was that was a disaster. What do you, what is this? If anything, well, I guess. Given that this has happened not just at Stanford but at a number of law schools now, what does it say to you about the state of legal education? Well, I sure hope that it's not representative. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't know empirically how I could determine whether this is is typical of what's going on at law schools, but it's a disturbing. Um, it's it if it is, it's very disturbing, and it's not just that the students themselves. We're not socialized into having the minimal amount of respect uh, for a a federal judge who's been invited to campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and I hesitate to even specify that it's the federal judge. You shouldn't act like that that way with any invited anybody you've invited anywhere. Um, But that evidently the administration at some level is teaching the students that they are correct Mm -hmm. in their reaction to the extent that they're being taught that this is some component of free speech, they're being misled. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, of course, it's not free speech to shout down a speaker and abuse him or her with vile language and, and grotesque innuendo. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's not that, – that's, I mean, I guess that's a form of speech, I suppose, but it's certainly not free speech. It's an abuse of, of, of speech. Um, the idea that because some judge has an opinion or has written an, written an opinion or represented a client um, that offends them, the idea that that harms the student mm-hmm. uh, is um, a bizarre idea. That That's really something that a student needs to be taught uh, to get over. Mm-hmm. Uh, it needs to be taught that you, you, need to, you, you need to have a different understanding of the free exchange of ideas, even ideas that you don't like and that may offend you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need to be, you don't, you sort of don't need to be reinforced in your victimhood uh, by, by, by saying, well, this person thinks X or thinks Y or thinks Z, and therefore I'm harmed by their presence, and I don't have to show them any respect. This is not a formula for a healthy legal system. Right. It's not a formula for a healthy civil society. Um, and it's... Um, it's uh, and that ought to be obvious to anybody, even people who haven't been to law school. Right. Uh, and I am encouraged. Um, the vast majority of responses I've gotten from from people who I know and people who I don't know uh, are people have been calling into chambers, which has not happened before. Hmm. Um, every single person who's contacted me has uh, been uh, sympathetic, uh, has been disturbed by the behavior. Um, and um, and I'm encouraged by that. I think the average person, for whatever reason, this is blown up. Um, mm-hmm. And the average person sees this and senses that something's off. Yeah. So I think that's encouraging. Can you uh, unpack a little bit that statement you made about how this is dangerous to the legal profession? Can you explain why? Yes, um, for a number of reasons. I mean, first, let, let's let's go to the most sort of basic and practical reason. What does it mean to be a lawyer? Well, it means to understand your client's position and be able to make a reasoned, even a persuasive argument to support your client's position. But at the same time, you have to listen sympathetically to the other side so that you understand what the potential weaknesses of the position are. Mm -hmm. How can I meet this objection? 
You have to you have to be sympathetic. The, the, where I've been most effective as an advocate before I was a judge was when I took the time to listen sympathetically to the to the position of my opponent, understand them. Mm-hmm. Then I could understand better how to counter that and represent my client. That kind of behavior, which is difficult, that that takes effort mm-hmm. to do that. It's not a normal human reaction to hear someone say you're wrong, and listen sympathetically, mm-hmm. and then try to try to 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 counter to counter the argument. That takes work. It takes training. It takes uh, restraint. Um, I haven't always uh, uh, been successful at that, but it's something that people have to learn how to do. What was the behavior that was on display there was the opposite of all of that. Um, it was it was a sort of a a a, a complete repudiation of somebody whose perceived view, viewpoints are are different from yours, mm-hmm. and that's I, I cannot imagine why that's good training for right. a lawyer. So there's definitely been, as you mentioned, a lot of support uh, and sort of public aversion to this disruption at Stanford. Uh, but apart from, I think, you, Judge Ho on the Fifth Circuit, Judge Elizabeth Branch on the 11th, very little public outcry from within the legal profession. Very few judges, as far as I know, very few professors and, of course, none of the elite law firms that will hire elite students like these Stanford grads. What do you mm-hmm. make of that relative silence? I'm not sure what to make of it. I guess I hope people – whether they're speaking out or not, are reflecting on it. I can tell you that I have received numerous personal communications from members of the judiciary mm. um, expressing outrage and uh, outrage and deep disappointment over the behavior of the students in the administration. Um, I would not want to make any of them public. Mm, Judges are a pretty reserved lot. Uh, of people, and that's understandable, and I respect that immensely. I myself don't particularly like talking about this. I I I thought when I became a judge, I could stop talking about myself mm-hmm. uh, and just talk through my opinions, and that's how I like to to operate, and that's how judges like to operate. Judges, after all, avoid uh, getting in politics; they avoid making comments on politics, and I, and I don't intend to make any comments of that nature at all to you or anybody else. And yet I am talking about this because it has become evident to me over the last week or so that this is one of those odd events, one of those strange events where sort of the mask is pulled back on some issue or some problem uh, where people are all saying the quiet part out loud, as, mm-hmm. as they say, or in, the, in this case, they're screaming the quiet mm-hmm. part out loud. Um, and so I want to be sure that um, at least my view of this matter, because since I was at the center of it, is heard and that people reflect on it. I'm, I'm not calling for any any particular response. I'm not calling for any particular, of course, not any, any, any political response. I'm just saying this is what happened. From my point of view, this is why it was distra- distressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I hope people reflect on what it means. Besides um, getting more people to sort of think about free speech and the heckler's veto and, you know, civil discourse – are there ways that you've thought of that to get this sort of behavior under control, to diminish it? Uh... It's something that has to be taught in law school. It, it's, it has to be modeled, I guess, in law school, not just mm-hmm. taught. You, you, you model p- people. Law school is not simply filling your head with knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's shaping your character, your sort of your 
your mental landscape and how you approach argument. I mean, everybody knows it's like thinking like a lawyer. We've seen the paper chase, right? right? Uh, this is the anti-paper chase, right? This is the, stu- the student <laughs> shouting down Kingsville right. um, and get r- riding him out of town on a rail. That's that. that that's not good. It's hard to imagine. It, have you seen that yes, movie? Well, yes. I, I, Kingsville would never have allowed. I, I don't have that kind of care. He would have. He would have melted everybody with his laser eyes. But. Um, it's got to it's it's got to be modeled. That's why law school is so grueling for so many people. It was for me because it you are being socialized into a different way of interacting with arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the professors are hiding the ball and they're they're interrogating you and they're drawing something out of you. This is a process of socialization, uh, if that's the right word, and uh, that that has to happen in law school. The last thing in the world you want in law school is simply your your sort of arrogant presuppositions about your your cor- the correctness of your views being reinforced mm-hmm. over and over again by by professors not that I, that that I know that anything like that's going on there but this is not a good symptom um uh, of 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 how the students are being socialized into thinking like lawyers mm-hmm. obviously that has major ramifications on uh our society uh, if that, in fact, is happening there or at any or other law schools more broadly, I sure hope it's not, mm-hmm. because those students at that law school and other law schools will go in to populate the commanding heights of right. of of society and influence uh, so many things. And uh, I want them to influence our society for the good mm-hmm. um, and not uh, for ill. Right. So you've now had a couple weeks to think about this event yourself, to reflect on it, to talk to other people. Um, have there been any reactions uh, from people that you found uh, surprising or thought-provoking? You know, uh, I mean, sort of, I guess no is an answer that I'm about to give. <laughs> That's uh, which fair. might That's surprise you. Um, <laughs> but uh, when you're on the inside of an event like this, which I have not often been, I guess the closest thing is to your nomination hearing mm-hmm. where you're sort of the focus of attention, right. which is very unpleasant. Now I'm on the inside of this event, and I find it difficult to reflect on it because mm. you're you're in the center of it. So I'm trying to pay attention to how other people react to it. And I think for the most part, uh, other people understand the event much better than I do because they have more objectivity about mm. it. And so I'm encouraged by the reaction to it. Of, of course, I'm being criticized in some quarters, and I wrote about that in the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. Oh, you got, you got angry. You shouldn't have gotten angry. You know, if you're in a situation like that um, – Sure. Just sort of stoicism, I guess, is one approach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really don't know how other people would react or have reacted to a situation like that. It was evident to me that this was um, a staged public shaming mm-hmm. um, and that I was sort of brought into a space where the students kind of could vent their rage at right. me. And I don't think... Um, then, and I, I didn't think then, and I don't think now that the proper response is some sort of um, uh, d- detached stoicism mm. from this. Um, I think one way to begin pushing back on this kind of behavior is to name it for what it is, mm-hmm. uh, which is just the, the tactics of a bunch of, uh, a bunch of bullies. Mm-hmm. Mobs are scary things. Um, I, I dislike mobs. Mobs are sort of the antithesis of law. Right. Um, and... Um, uh, People, no matter what the issue is, no matter what your political persuasion is, people need to be very, very wary about getting into a mob. Uh, thought stops 
and uh, nasty things get said and, and nasty things can can get done as mm-hmm. well. Fortunately, nothing like that happened to me. Um, so I think some uh, justifiable anger and criticism is appropriate here. And that's uh, that's one thing that I'm doing. So, Judge, again, I want to thank you for taking the time Happy and uh, give you our our uh our always ending question, which you've already answered before. Mm. You uh, mentioned the last time we asked, you know, who would you talk to if you could talk to any Supreme Court justice? You said Oliver Wendell Holmes, and you said you talk principally about the confirmation process. Um, has that answer changed? Oh, sure. <laughs> Why not? Uh, and, and um, yeah, I do remember saying that. You know, I read a book about Plessy versus Ferguson called Separate mm. uh, recently. It was a wonderful book um, about the different sort of characters involved and how mm-hmm. the lawsuit occurred. And it was very interesting to me uh, because, uh, you know, I was in a small way involved in in similar sort of trying to find the right plaintiff to challenge a particular. It was fascinating and mm-hmm. also fascinating because it occurred in my own state mm-hmm. that I was born in Louisiana. And uh, there's there's a, a great deal of vivid um, characterization, vivid writing about uh, this, uh, John Marshall Harlan, about mm-hmm. the, the, the great dissenter. I heard a talk last night about the great dissenter. Uh, I would love to talk to him. He, um, in many ways, uh, sort of transcended his own views and his own prejudices about slavery, mm-hmm. about racism, and uh, sort of miraculously transformed into this uh, champion mm-hmm. of um, of 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 the, of the you know of of, of oppressed people uh, and of the Fourteenth Amendment and of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, and I would like to talk to him about how he found the courage to do that, mm. uh, because I don't have it, um, and how he, how he found the courage to do that in those circumstances, right. which I have to imagine were, were so much worse than we can imagine, uh, so much worse than now. People talk about how divisive our politics mm. are now. Well, I really go back then. Right. Um, go back then to the Civil War era, to the, you know, the, the, uh, the Jim Crow laws, and, and try to stand up to that. And yet he did that. This guy who was a, a, a attorney general of Kentucky, you know, owned slaves. Uh, and uh, what a fascinating person. I know there's a, there's a very good biography of him out that I mean to read uh, right now. But what, a, what a, an amazing um, historical figure. I'd love to talk to him. Maybe even more than Holmes. No offense <laughs> to Holmes. Well, Judge, it's been a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you for joining us and for rehashing what has been, I'm sure, a very unpleasant couple of weeks. Thank you, John Carlo. Glad to be with you. Since I interviewed Judge Duncan, which happened a couple days ago, uh, there have been developments in the Stanford debacle uh, since. So first of all, the student protesters uh, doubled down. They were very upset about Dean Martinez's apology to the judge. Uh, They demanded that she rescind it, that she change the free speech policy to ban right-leaning speakers, and also that she expel the members of the FedSoc leadership there. Well, I'm glad they were reasonable. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So to her uh, incredible credit, Dean Martinez responded with a memo, a 10-page memo on the importance of free speech and free inquiry, Mm. which announced mandatory civics training for the entire student and staff. It is a good memo. Uh, But I couldn't help but read it and note an omission. At no point uh, does the dean reflect on why her elite law students don't know anything about civics, care nothing for free inquiry, and seem to be utterly terrified by ideas that they disagree with. She has not, it seems to me, considered whether Stanford itself has contributed to this educational failure of theirs. 
Now, I looked at Stanford's courses. Um, they are chock-a-block with uh, courses about left-wing activism. You could essentially finish your first year's required courses and for the next two years uh, almost entirely avoid studying law at all if you chose. <laughs> It'd be funny if uh, Stanford if wasn't a law school. wasn't so sad. Yeah. Uh, and of the school's 86 faculty members, 106 lecturers, 16 deans, and 39 administrators, only one, Professor Michael McConnell, is known to be right of center, and he doesn't teach any required courses. Mm. So it's really no wonder that Stanford students are civics illiterates and terrified of opposing ideas. Only Yale, which has nobody right of center at all, has thicker padding on the walls. But this all got me thinking. Civics deficiencies aside, the school doesn't even appear to be teaching its students the fundamentals of free speech law. So today's trivia, Zach, is... Do you know more about free speech than a Stanford law student? <laughs> well, that has to be a low bar, so I'm excited for today's trivia. Oh, Let's good. do it. <laughs> good, good, good. All right. We're going to start off with are, some... Are you proud of that? I am proud of that. I, I am delighted that I found an area of trivia that you are not dreading for once. All right. Let's do this. So first couple questions are going to be true or false. Uh, easy ones. All right. True or false. Offensive speech can be lawfully prohibited. Well, I didn't go to Stanford GC, so I know the answer is false. <laughs> You are you are correct. Uh, the ACL. Well, there's a many cases on point, but uh, one of the most noteworthy ones is Village of Skokie. The ACLU won a case uh, defending the uh, an American Nazi group's right to hold a rally and say some truly abhorrent things. So well done. Number two, true or false? Hate speech falls outside the protections of the First Amendment. What is hate speech, GC? <laughs> what qualifies? Well, there you're hitting you're hitting on something, but you got to give me your true false answer. <laughs> uh, I think it, I think you're getting at it false, but I think uh, my question remains. Yes, no, you you are right. So what the is hate is speech? False. There is no such thing as hate speech. It is not a defined legal concept. There is a case called RAV versus St. Paul in which the Supreme Court struck down a law that made it a crime to display anything that, quote, arouses anger, alarm, or resentment on the basis of race, color, creed, religion, or gender. So well done again. Number three, true or false, shouting down a speaker is itself free speech. Well, I think this is something the hecklers at Stanford and other law schools have for, forgotten. They're not entitled to a heckler's veto of that is, speech. That is correct. Uh, so, you know, while the speech itself might be protected, uh, giving them essentially a heckler's veto to cancel other speech that they oppose, that would not be protected. Yes, exactly right. There are two ways of sort of thinking about this. Uh, one is philosophically, for, and it's actually the easier question. Um, and, and Justice Thurgood Marshall in a dissent in Kleindienst versus Mendel uh, sort of articulated this philosophical argument. And it is that the freedom to speak and the freedom to hear are inseparable. And the second is legally. And from that point of view, we'd ask, could a law forbid a heckler's veto? Uh, and there's two ways that a court could analyze that and reach the same result. Under uh, Ward versus Rock against racism, the answer is yes, as long as uh, a ban on a heckler's veto is content neutral and passes strict scrutiny. Uh, it also might be, though, non-speech expressive conduct, in which case under O'Brien versus the United States, which is the draft card burning case, it need only pass intermediate scrutiny. Mm, very so, interesting. Zach, three for three so far. I'm going to make it a little <laughs> harder. No more true false. Oh, no. Now, Just when we were on a roll, GC. Why ruin a good thing? <laughs> Let's enough. call it a day and stop there. <laughs> no, no, no. We, uh, we got, there's, there's more that the Stanford needs to know. So I don't think we have enough time. <laughs> uh, well, there's that. So going back to RAV versus St. Paul, again, uh, striking down a law that outlawed um, 
inspiring anger, alarm, or resentment on the basis of race, color, creed, etc. There are two outer limits to that rule. Uh, What are they? And I want to be clear, when you say there are outer limits to the rule, you're essentially saying there's some speech that would be unprotected. Correct. Essentially, right? And so when we think about this, we all know defamatory speech, right? Mm -hmm. That is not protected by the First Amendment. Now, how you determine, uh, you know, (laughs) what type of protection that should be, it's very controversial right now. Um, As I understand it, generally speaking, you also can't threaten uh, someone. A true threat would not be protected uh, speech as well. And then also, um, broadly speaking, although I think it's very uh, convoluted and not very conceptually clear, this idea of fighting words. Yes, Uh, well done. But I think, you know, fighting words as it was originally envisioned is a little bit different today than it was originally. Yes. Part of the reason, because that's so hard to define, um, so broad. So I think I would essentially have to be fighting words. You know, if I insulted you, GC, in such a way that you became so enraged, you had uh, the desire to punch me. I know that's a common occurrence. (laughs) Um, But that would not be uh, protected. So if I were to threaten you or to say something so outrageous, you know, you'd want to uh, get in a fight with me. Your Um, dog chew toy jokes, for instance, about... uh the Jack Daniels case. I stand by those. <laughs> <laughs> I stand by those. So, yes, you are, you are absolutely right. True threats. Uh, this is the Virginia versus Black case. The court held that a statute prohibiting uh, cross-burning was constitutional insofar uh, as it prohibited uh, – insofar as cross-burning was done to threaten. But, uh, yeah. but, but the court struck down the law uh, insofar as it made uh, – it took the position that cross-burning was prima facie evidence of a threat. Because that impermissibly shifted the burden of proof onto the defendant. Uh, and on fighting words, you're right about uh, that and about the state of the law. The, the original case there is called Chapinski versus New Hampshire. And the court said that fighting words are words that, and I quote, by their very utterance inflict injury or tend to incite an immediate breach of the peace. Now that's something so, to chew on, GC. It is. And in <laughs> fact, question number five, our final question. Uh, An interesting one. Could Stanford students claim that Judge Duncan or the Federalist Society uttered fighting words based on that first part of Chapinsky's definition, words that (laughs) inflict injury because the harm and discomfort that uh, their presence and speech on campus caused them amount to an injury? Well, it's not funny uh, because so many on the left today say that words, uh, even you know, everyday common words, cause harm mm-hmm. or deny you know certain individuals' existence, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's just that's absurd uh, in so many ways. So no, uh, the answer is no. Yes, you're you're in fact right. In fact, uh, the Supreme Court has not overruled Chapinsky, but it has essentially scratched that part of the definition out of the case. In Gooding versus Wilson, for instance, uh, the court said that fighting words are those with a direct tendency to cause acts of violence by the person to whom individually the remark is addressed. The test being would a person of common intelligence think that the speech is likely to cause an average addressee to fight? Yeah, yeah. That's what I said. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly right. I'm just saying you're right and providing a citation. Just in a much uh, higher brow way, (laughs) see? Zach. This is five for five for you on trivia. Well, lightning well strikes uh, every once in a while. Don't well get done. used to it. Well, that's all we have for today. I'm going to go out on a high note here. Uh, so thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Thank you.
case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.